Welcome to Habits for Happiness with Lady Fuller. The path to happiness is paved with healthy habits. We spend much of our lives searching for happiness when the key we're looking for is right there inside of us. We can discover that key through habit change, which you're about to learn about. Now, here is your host, Lady Fuller. Welcome to Habits for Happiness, the show where we discuss habits you can employ in your daily life to make you happier. Um, and today we're going to talk about drinking is the my alcohol-free and the alcohol-free hero, Annie Grace. So welcome, Annie. Oh, thanks. So good to be here. Yeah. And quickly, and for those of you who don't know, I'm Lady Fuller, a habits and success coach who helps clients drop limiting habits like drinking and adopt healthier habits for a happier life. So quickly, I'm going to in- introduce you, Annie. Annie is the author of This Naked Mind, Control Alcohol, Find Freedom, Discover Happiness, and Change Your Life, and the author of The Alcohol Experiment, a 30-day alcohol-free challenge to interrupt your habits and help you take control. In Annie's free time, she loves to ski, just like me, travel, just like me, and enjoy her beautiful family. Annie Grace lives with her husband and three children in Colorado. And I just want listeners to know really quick that I also don't drink. I gave up alcohol four years ago, actually, after reading Annie's book, This Naked Mind. And so, Annie, thank you personally for making me happier and changing the trajectory of my life. Awesome. Yeah. And so, before we get started, why don't you tell us what you're working on now? What's new? So cool. So we are, I am working on bringing some of those books, uh, especially the alcohol experiment, which is like that 30 day interrupt your habits pattern into the world of technology and apps. So we actually just launched it as a free app in the app store. And that's been really challenging and interesting, but I think that there's something about just having having it in your pocket. And we already have that habit of picking up our phone. So linking other positive habits to that via technology has been a fun challenge and really exciting. So awesome. So for listeners, what is the name of the app if they want to download it? It's the alcohol experiment. Yeah. And it's right. totally free. It's a 30-day challenge. It guides you through. There's like journaling and a community. And yeah, it's pretty cool. It's a great thing. It's sober October. So it's a great time to pick it up. So I want to start with your story. And it's one of the reasons why I didn't mention it in the bio because it's so powerful and was so powerful for me to read about. And so I just want to know if you could tell us and listeners, what brought you to a place where you gave up drinking and then in turn wrote these incredible books so that you could change others' lives? So for me, it kind of actually started after college, which is different than a lot of people's drinking journeys. So I didn't drink a ton in college, definitely didn't drink a ton in high school. I didn't remember it being even a big part of life. My husband and I got married, moved from Colorado to New York City. My first day on the job, somebody um, said, hey, we'll take you out to happy hour. I remember going and not even knowing what to order, but I ordered a Cosmopolitan because I'd been watching a lot of sex in the city and thought that would be cool, but it wasn't really what people were drinking circa 2005 in New York City. So anyway, (laughs) I, I love sex in the city, just for the record. Yeah, I got made fun of, but the bill came and it was 25 bucks for one drink in 2005. And so I I just had this feeling of like, oh, this isn't for me. I've got you know mountains of student loan debt. We're trying to scrape together an apartment. It's the most expensive place to live. And so I just stopped going out to happy hour and I got promoted. I actually was recruited for a different role. And I had my boss come up to me one day and say, hey, why don't you ever show up at happy hour? And I was like, oh, I don't drink. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. It's not about the drinking. Like, this is where the deals are done. This is like the golf course for corporate America. This is where your ideas are going to get showcased. He's like, all the higher ups are in from out of town, from the UK. Like, you need to show up. And so I had a method. I would drink a, a glass of, of wine. And then I, and I chose red wine because it was healthy for your heart, according to <laughs> some false <laughs> research. But that's what I believed at the we'll time. We'll get to that later. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and lowest calorie and all that stuff. So I like intentionally chose the wine and then I drink a glass of wine and a pint of water to make sure I never got too tipsy. I would even sometimes go into the bathroom, throw up the last glass of wine just to keep drinking because everybody I was with, they were all men. They were all twice my age. Everybody had a higher tolerance. And I knew I was doing this like intentionally for my career. Like it was like this very, and I'm, I'm a very intentional, logical human being. So it was like, um, yeah. Methodical, methodical, right? Exactly. But you know what I didn't, you, I couldn't have even told you 
when I started drinking in that way, that alcohol was addictive. I, I could not have told you that. I, I firmly believed that like there was a small percentage of people to which alcohol would be a problem. The rest of us, alcohol was just as you know innocuous as whatever, a little bit of sugar on occasion or something. And it, no big deal, right? And so I um, fast forward a decade. I had two young kids. I had gotten promoted. It had, quote, worked. I was now global head of marketing. I was in charge of 28 countries, flying internationally two to three times a month, often to multiple countries at a time, always in first class or business class where the alcohol was flowing. I was drinking probably about two bottles of wine every single night. And it was and I want to mention to listeners, too, you were like only 26, right? So you were one of the youngest so at the at the age that I got that first job that invited me out to happy hour, I was 26. Six, I was the okay. youngest vice president in that company. By the time amazing. I um I think I was 33 by the time I became the global head of marketing. So there was like, you know, about seven, eight years in between that. And uh, because it was about 10 years after that I actually stopped drinking. Right. And so, but in that yeah. So, so I was always called kiddo. I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder because everybody was like, oh, kiddo, you know, and the, the day I turned 30, it was like a big deal because everybody else was, you know, in their late forties or early fifties. And it was just, it, it was funny. Um, and, you know, I felt of course great about it. I felt like, oh, look at me, I'm so impressive. But the thing that was starting to happen internally was that alcohol was having a cost. You know, it was having a cost of a lot of different costs, you know, cost of hangovers for one. I wasn't really feeling it anymore. I was super proud of my tolerance. I thought, wow, I can drink more than anybody around here, not even really feel it. Look at me. But I also had this voice in the back of my head that said, gosh, nobody, you're, you know, was like five, eight, 140 pounds. Like nobody should be able to drink two bottles of wine. Like this doesn't make sense. And just these, I, I stumbled across an article about alcohol and breast cancer. And it was pretty recently after one of my um, close friends from growing up's mom had died from breast cancer. And it said that just three drinks a week increases your chances of breast cancer by 15%. And I would start to wake up in the middle of the night and, you know, just kind of like the alcohol is burning out of your system and just sit there and, and wonder like, what am I doing? You know? And, and also I felt so smart and control in every other area of my life. And so I did what most people do. I said, all right, well, I'm just going to, you know, just start to cut back a bit and I could do it, but yeah. I was always unhappy about it. So I could take the break for a week, for 30 days for, you know, only, but I was always just like, oh, well, this kind of sucks. Like, and so it wasn't as if I couldn't take that break, but the option of, of taking the break or drinking less meant that I felt like I was just kind of missing out and I was deprived. I had developed these really deep subconscious beliefs that alcohol was the key to relaxing, to having a good time. They'd been compounded by my own experience. They were firmly cemented into like my mind, my neuropathways. And so it was, so I, I felt like I was faced with two, two, two options there was the option to drink less and feel kind of like I was missing out on something that was really fun in life um, and really helpful. I thought alcohol was kind of the duct tape that was holding it all together with the career and the husband and the kids and all the stuff or keep drinking and continue to deal with some of these unwanted consequences. And um, I remember coming back from, from London on a particularly boozy trip and sitting in the airport after having a few drinks at the airport in the morning at the hotel bar, which was something that was like one of those like firm lines in my head. Like if you drink in the morning, you're that kind of person. If you don't drink in the morning, you're not. And so I was having, but I was so hungover. And I thought, gosh, if I could just have a drink, I can get home. It's a one-time deal. But of course, when you cross one of those little internal alarms, it doesn't go off. And so I was sitting there feeling like, wow, what, what is happening? And uh, in that moment, you know, because I'd, I'd been trying both of those options, just continuing to drink, trying to drink less. And in that moment, I was like, you know what, there's, there's got to be a better, better way. And the question I'd been asking myself, which I think is the question most people ask themselves, which is a very unfortunate question. And I don't think it should be asked when we start to do something that we feel like we shouldn't be doing as much of, is we immediately point the blame at ourselves. We say, what's wrong with me? <laughs> do I have a problem? Why can't I do this? Right. 
And with alcohol, it's it's really pointed because we don't have cigarette aholics or heroinism, or you know, we have people who are addicted to heroin or addicted to nicotine, right? But with alcohol, we have this term like alcoholic, and it points all this blame. And you know, I actually had a friend tell me, Well, you're not an alcoholic, you know, and and so on one hand, I felt like great, you know, but on the other hand, felt like, well, if I'm not an alcoholic, then even the conversation about drinking less isn't available to me because even if you ask that question, the assumption is, oh, well, you must have a problem. But I was, I was putting blame on myself. And in that moment, coming back from the trip, I decided to ask a different question, which is why is this different? Why is it that I used to be able to take it or leave it? No big deal. It wasn't a big, you know, it wasn't taking up a lot of mental real estate in my brain. And now I, I feel deprived if I leave it. I, f- I feel upset. I feel like I'm missing out. And so I said, you know what? I'm just going to find the answer to that. So I did something, you know, I didn't realize it was kind of radical at the time, but I stopped trying to stop drinking. I stopped trying to cut back on drinking. I said, you know what? I'm going to drink as much as I want whenever I want. I'm going to take away all that mental noise from trying to, you know, rein in with willpower, this habit that is not serving me. I'm going to put that aside. But at the same time, I'm going to just like, I'm going to understand I'm doing the best I can with the tools I have, but I'm also going to try to understand why I'm doing it. And so I said, okay, I made a list of every single reason I drank. I asked a bunch of my friends for all the reasons they drank. And I just started looking through um, this beautiful day and age we live in. You can just download any sort of scientific study for 50 bucks, a hundred bucks, buy the whole thing, read through it. And I just started going through the immense amount of research there is on alcohol to try to understand why, why is this different? What happened? And the things I was learning was mind blowing. I mean, mind blowing. And how does it, how do we not know this? How does everybody not know this? What is, what is going on? I was fascinated. And about a year later, I remember telling my husband, I was like, you know, I think I'm done drinking. And he's like, what? You're always the one you love drinking. I was like, no, you know, I just, I don't want to do it anymore. And he was so surprised and a little skeptical, to be honest, but, you know, that was really it for me. And it was so interesting. Like, I don't identify with being sober. I don't identify with being in recovery or an alcoholic or anything like that. For me, it was, a, you know what, I drink as much as I want whenever I want to drink. I just haven't actually wanted a drink in almost seven years now. And, and that's how it feels for me. Like every instance, it's like, would I want to drink at this wedding? I know, you know, I remember all the stuff I now know. And it's about as tempting as, you know, drinking some motor oil or something like it's just not. Yeah. tempting. I mean, you know, and you say this in the book, but um, it's like asking your question, the question, do I want a cigarette right now? Right. Like I, right. I don't because I have no physical chemical addiction to cigarettes. I've never, yeah. I've never developed the beliefs um, and had the experience to where cigarettes have hijacked my brain. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's very similar. So how did you decide? So, so beautiful story. Thank you for sharing. How did you decide, okay, I'm going to stop drinking, but now I'm going to write books to help other people. That's a, that's almost a whole different leap. It was very unintentional, interestingly. And how it worked exactly was I was still working this big corporate job, which, be, which became fascinating. And, and I think that it was fascinating because I was fascinated by it rather than because I was defensive of the fact I wasn't drinking or I felt uncomfortable with my own decision. I just felt fascinated. I remember going to Brazil and like literally one of the colleagues got so aggressive about the fact that I didn't want to try his Cipriana that he was like someone else had to tell him to sort of stand down in Portuguese. And it was almost like a personal offense to his nationalism that I wasn't going to try this specific type type of alcohol. I actually did. I said, no, no, it's fine. And I did have a sip and say, no, that tastes great. Just because like, it was so intense. And so this was a whole, whole fascinating thing. Yeah. It's a sociological. I mean, it becomes this whole like other experiment around about psychology. Right. It's like, right? oh, yeah. we really are attached to this substance in a glass, mm. this fermented thing in all these ways we don't really understand. And it was fascinating. But anyway, that was the tangent. The answer is I had no intention of doing that. I was actually just flying all around, but I knew that the research I had done was really important. And I, every time I discovered something new, Lady, I was like, how do we not know this? What is happening? <laughs> and so I actually just um, totally ghetto, figured out how to put a website up, one page website with one PDF on it. There wasn't like an email opt-in or like some email sequence, like none of that. It was just like one website 
I called it this naked mind because that's what I wanted. I actually was eating bare naked granola and bare naked granola is like organic, no preservatives, all this stuff. It's like, that's how I want my mind to be. Right. So I called it this naked mind. I was also listening to this American life. And I just liked that, you know, alliteration of this and called it that put the PDF just right there, smack dab in the middle of the page. And then I shared it in a few places and 20,000 people downloaded it in two weeks. It just like, I could see the chills. Yeah. Got to start somewhere. And man, that's a big somewhere. It was amazing. And so I had an email address on the bottom of this really, you know, lots of pages, but it was just mostly research. It was really messy, lots of typos. And somebody like I started getting emails from all over the world saying, wow, this is working for me when nothing else has. Wow, I didn't know this. Wow, this is so surprising. And I remember one guy, he actually emailed and said, you know, you should make this a book. I was like, "I, I can't write a book. I have no platform. I, you know, I, there's nothing like I knew a little bit about the fact that you had to have a platform and he's like, well, you can actually self-publish right now through create space. And so I started looking into self-publishing and I, I initially self-published this naked mind, actually interesting. I think it was October 15th, which is when we're recording this. Like I, I think it was literally today. Was it six years ago, 2015, I believe. So yeah, six years ago. It was yeah, and I picked up one of those self-published books in right next to the Woody Creek Tavern where I live, you know, where I oh, live. Yes. Right after you had published it, self-published it, it was at this little mercantile that's next to the Woody Creek Tavern. They had it right at the checkout. And they don't really sell books there. So it was interesting. Oh, the reason that was there, that's so cool because <laughs> my mother, so I'm from the valley that you live in, Aspen. Yeah. And my mom was such a proud mama of the fact that like her daughter had written a book that she just started going door to door to all the, well, well, I found it. And so I was like, this book is so amazing. And I picked it up. So thanks to your mother (laughs) for finding my daughter, write a book. She's a local. Can you put it up? Yeah. It was like, you know, this mercantile near my house has all these local wares, right? It doesn't actually exist anymore, but I did pick up the book then. And then a couple of years later, I kept following you and it then was you know, published on a bigger form. So I, I was one of the first. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> I mean, like to bring it full circle with how much things have changed. I got a text from my mom yesterday. Her husband lives in Australia. They've actually been separated because of COVID for a few years now, unfortunately. But um, he was driving in Australia, listening to the radio, and he was listening to the BBC. And I was just interviewed on the BBC and I came on the radio. And so he's texting my mom like, oh my gosh, your daughter is like on the BBC in Australia. And so it was just so funny from like, just trying to Italy. slip it into the Woody Creek Tavern. Yeah. Well, kudos to your mom, please. That's so awesome. <laughs> so for people that are listening, they may be wondering, um, and, and I'll, I'll go back a second. So for me in my personal story, I worried about my drinking and I worried about it very silently. No one ever told me I needed to stop drinking. I never had a gutter moment but it produced a lot of cognitive dissonance for me, very similar to you. And I just wasn't sort of, I knew that to be my best self and I knew to to go where I wanted to go in my life, which was to live my purpose, be a coach, all these other things that I had to drop drinking. And it was so counterintuitive to my life because I'm from New Orleans. I grew up in a drinking household and everyone I know drinks and actually don't know anyone that doesn't drink who isn't an alcoholic. So I wanted to offer to people what, how do you know if you are in the gray area drinking spectrum with which I identify with or an alcoholic? So where, is there a boundary there? Where does that lie? Cause listeners may be wondering, and I do want listeners to know if they do need help that the 12 steps is available to them beyond gray area drinking, which is the ability to put it down with some help, maybe from a coach. Yeah, that's such a great question. And I think that it's interesting because it is much less actually about alcoholic, non-alcoholic, although, although I will share some statistics around you know chemical dependency and much more about what stage of the spectrum you're at in terms of how much your body has changed to accommodate regular drinking. So how much your mind and, and specifically like um, your brain has changed to accommodate regular drinking. And so that's kind of a whole can of worms, but I can give you some yeah, give us some stats because I think it's so powerful, the science too, right? Yeah, so, so according to the CDC, only 10% of excessive drinkers, so only 10% of all, so like 
87% of people drink, right? Only 10% of the people who drink excessively, which is a small fraction of the people who overall drink, are actually chemically addicted to alcohol. And how they look for that is somebody who would have withdrawal symptoms, delirium tremens, you know, very severe things because they actually have never tried to not have a drink. And the brain has compensated for alcohol in such a way that when the alcohol is removed, there's actually a whiplash effect and that is very dangerous. And so that's, but again, it's a very small fraction. It's only 10% of excessive drinkers. So there's 90% of people who are drinking excessively. Let's not even talk about the people who are drinking moderately who are not chemically addicted. So the chances that you are, are pretty small. Um, but generally that is characterized by someone who honestly is drinking most of the day, all day, you know, almost dawn till dusk. It's also characterized by somebody who has not gone a day without a drink for sometimes decades like surprise. That's a, that's a good rule, I think, decades, too. Right. Yeah. And and I think that in the one of the internal ways is you go from like, huh, you know, maybe the gray area, I think, is really about like, huh, is this a problem? Is this not a problem? Where do I stand on this? Right. But unfortunately, we feel fear in asking that question. It isn't like asking, like, huh, you know, should I be exercising a bit more? Or should I be, you know, cutting back on carbs or sugar? Like those questions are fairly innocuous, but like this question around alcohol has been hijacked by this whole alcoholic conversation. So we don't feel safe or comfortable saying, hey, should I? Would I be happy drinking a bit less? You know, that isn't the question we're asking. We're asking, what's wrong with me? Do I have a problem? Am I an alcoholic? And I'm here to tell you, like, the term alcoholic is actually scientifically and medically imprecise. The actually what they use now in the diagnostic and statistical manual is the DSM. And it's 11 questions. And if you answer yes to two of the questions, you have mild alcohol use disorder. Now, every drinker I know would answer yes to two of the questions. Those two questions are, do you need to drink more than you used to to get the same effect? Everyone I know. And do you ever have you ever had a moment where you've drank and then regretted it later? Everyone I know. <laughs> yes. And so if we look at it this way, then this suddenly becomes a very safe everyone conversation right? Instead of a fractional, I, I'm broken, I have a problem, I fit into that very small percentage of people who are actually alcoholics conversation. Yeah. And so I think, go ahead. The, the last thing I was going to say is, so the gray area is really like, is it a problem? Is it not a problem? If we were more empowered to answer that question and say, you know, actually even reframe it to say like, would my life be a bit better drinking less? And, and forget about quitting drinking forever. That, that doesn't even have to be true for everybody. A lot of people come to that joyfully like I did, but that wasn't even my starting point or my intention. And then we move into like, no, I know this is a problem. I'm, I'm pretty sure this is a problem in my life, but I can still like do something about it. Unfortunately, the option to doing something about it has me feeling deprived and missing out, which is where I was, which is why I had to find that third way. And then I think we move from there into, okay, I've been trying to do something about it and been unable to. So the fear goes from, oh, am I going to have to stop drinking? That's really going to suck to, I don't know, I'm afraid I can't stop drinking. And at that point, that's where I would say you're in that 10%. If you are afraid you cannot stop drinking because you've tried before and it has been a no-go, that is a place where you, you know, the 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 need is is greater. But again, it's all on a spectrum instead of being like this, you know, yes or no, you were kind of born this way. There's no good science to support any of that. Yeah. And it's also like what we identify as, right? So, you know, as a coach, you know, I'm really big into what we identify as because our identities shape our beliefs and our beliefs shape our behavior, right? So if we want to change our behavior, we have to change what we identify as. And for me personally, you know, I probably drank for, I would say like eight years longer than I wanted to. Um, I was an entrepreneur and I was very stressed and I would use drinking to decompress, but I was smart enough to know that that wasn't really working for me anymore. But honestly, I kept drinking because I was afraid of being labeled as an alcoholic. Yeah. And it wasn't until actually I found your book that I realized it was a safe space for me to identify as an empowered human who just chose not to drink. And I still am very confusing to a lot of people, I would say, because I have friends, you know, I'm in a CEO network and I have a lot of people who offer me drinks and that they've known me, they've known my whole alcohol-free journey, but they, they're they like, are you finally going to drop the not drinking thing? You know, 
<laughs> so I'm like, no, not today. And um, so I just want to offer to people that there is a safe space to choose and make the empowered choice to not drink. I mean, I often tell people, you know, I don't keep Oreos in my house. I don't eat Oreos because if I eat one Oreo, I'll eat the whole box and I feel like crap. And it's not so different for me. I just, it's not a healthy habit. Um, And I do also want to mention, you know, all high powered heads of state, athletes, you know, anyone who is making massive change in the world. I mean, would you say that they're drinkers or not drinkers? Generally, they're not drinkers. And it's, it's really surprising to people. Like usually when I have had, you know, talk to people like that, it is, um, yeah, I just really don't have time for that. And interestingly, I'm in a lot of entrepreneur groups now and the CEOs that kind of make that empowered choice, they see everything they're doing skyrocketing. Because if you think of how much time and effort we're really spending drinking and thinking about drinking, it's a lot. So it's a very costly habit. Yeah. And the cost is time and it's energy. And, you know, for me, it's clarity. Um, You know, People always say, well, what are you swapping it for? And I always tell people, well, my clarity is very addictive. Yeah. You know, I feel like not drinking is a superpower. And that's what those elite performers who are working at that top, top level in the world, that's what they know. And that's what the rest of us don't know. It's like, the, I always say, it's like the secret of the Illuminati. Yep. <laughs> so I want to talk about what are some healthy habits people can do instead if they have a stressful day? to, I would say, to, you know, downshift. What are some other things people could do? Um, My two go-to habits are really meditation and exercise. Those things will kind of flip the switch for me. I think they are a little more like seeds though. Like alcohol is like instant. You're going to have it. It's going to make you feel good for 20 minutes. And it's actually going to make you feel bad for two to three hours, but something like building a meditation or an exercise or a journaling habit, it's like planting a seed. You're not going to necessarily see the rewards, but eventually you're going to be sitting under this really beautiful shady tree. Okay. So Annie, we're going to head to break and I want everyone to hang out and hang tight. And we're going to come back and we're going to talk about those habits more in depth that we can do to replace drinking in our lives. But I also want to come back and talk about society at large and what's going on and why we're even reaching for a drink in the first place. So hang tight, everyone. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. Try out a free coaching session with your host, Lady Fuller, to learn more about her individualized and corporate coaching programs. Learn to drop bad habits and pick up healthier habits to live a healthier life. Email her at lady at happinessmba.com. That's L-A-D-Y at happinessmba.com. Or check out our coaching business at habits, the letter for happiness.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Want to reward clients, customers, or employees with a gift that will blow their socks off? We at International Gifting Company have your next corporate event covered. We carry 250 personalized gifts for on-site incentive events. Or we can create virtual gift boxes your employees and clients can receive at home. Contact us today for a quick and free proposal. We love to wow! Contact info at intlgiftingco.com or check out our webpage at intlgiftingco.com. It's your world. Motivate, change, succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are listening to Habits for Happiness. To reach the show today, call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Now, back to our program. 
Here again is Lady Fuller. Welcome back, everyone, to Habits for Happiness. We have Annie Grace on the show today talking about the bad habit of drinking or the habit of drinking, I should say, not not labeling it as anything. And I wanted to talk with Annie now about some healthy habits that can replace, you know, perhaps the habit of drinking. And you had mentioned exercise and meditation before the break, but I did want to ask, do you have a morning routine? Yes. I mean, it's loose. And I, I think one of the things that I realized a few years ago when I was, you know, trying to, so the brain, especially the subconscious mind, it, it cannot tell the difference between like a quote, good habit and a quote, bad habit, right? It's just whatever has been happening long enough for your brain to say, okay, I'm going to take that and I'm going to make it routine. And so there's been a lot of a lot of research about like, okay, well, how does, how does that work? Is it a, a certain amount of time? Do you need to just have consistency, stuff like that? And there was a great book that came out called Tiny Habits by Dr. BJ Fogg that really opened my eyes to the fact that one of the key things is actually emotion. So how you feel about it over the long term, And you can come to that emotion by doing it enough times and having that really good emotion kind of bubble up. Or you can come to that emotion by learning something new. And then when you learn something new, you feel something new, which is really why I think this naked mind is so successful with drinking is because it's all about learning something new. So you actually feel differently about it. And so for me recently, the things in my morning routine have been so much like, do I like this? There was so long where I was like forcing myself to wake up early. And then I journal and I was trying to do all of these things. And I, um, I took Gretchen Rubin's four tendencies quiz and I'm a rebel. And so all of that, <laughs> me too. Really you are. <laughs> yes. And it was, and really for rebels, we have to say, what do we want to do? Like, what is, I know we've both spoken with her and she's so great. And, and it's about like, what do we want to do? And for me, that desire so, you know, now I wake up exercise first because then I'm just getting it out of the way. I've created a lot of positive emotion with that, been doing it, you know, with my husband and then protein smoothie because I was diagnosed with hypoglycemia. So that was a game changer for me, knowing that information in my moods. I, I was on all these antidepressants that I got off when I stopped drinking, but then my moods were still fluctuating until I realized like I need to eat protein regularly. So I have like you know, a a jar of nuts right next to me and just making sure that my blood sugar stays stable. And the desire, I think, to do things that feel good and allow yourself to not do them sometimes for me really helps. So yeah, it's really that exercise. um, And then, you know, try to meditate twice a day, once in the morning and once in the evening, either first thing when I wake up, if I'm not if I'm going to fall right back asleep, I won't do it because then it would be <laughs> sleeping meditation. But yeah, you know, I, think, <laughs> I think a nice way to think of some of these habits, especially with the morning routine, because I have clients who I always offer habits because everybody has different habits that they like and dislike and work for them or don't work for them to think of them as more like rituals. So it doesn't for us type A people, we, we, we don't, you know, self-sabotage if we can't do it every day. We just know that we try to do them. And if we can't do them, we have some grace with ourselves that, you know, we did our best and they're there as resources for us. So one thing I wanted to talk about too, is this idea of gratitude. So it's a practice and a habit that I ascribe to. And I actually think gratitude is the antidote to most things. Um, most things that have darkness surrounded them, if we, if we want to label as such. So I guess what I'm wondering, and for you in your life, what is the what is the relationship between gratitude and and not drinking alcohol? Oh, it's huge. I, you know, every time that I have been really disappointed in my life or really upset, it's all about expectations. And if like I think Tony Robbins said, release expectation for appreciation and just that practice. And I I ended up very soon after I stopped drinking, reading Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now. And he suggests something where you just, for a few seconds, 15, 20 seconds, I wasn't ready to like go into the full-on meditation thing. I was pretty resistant to the fact that, oh my gosh, all this maintenance, we have to do it daily? Like, really? Like, come on. I just want to- It can be overwhelming, right? You you just want (laughs) to enjoy your clear mornings. And you're like, 
every day. And then I started to reframe it and think about, okay, well, you do have to actually get new tires on your car and you do actually have to paint your house. And like, there is actual maintenance for this physical body we have in order to feel really good and become more accepting of it. But I was really resistant at first. And with Eckhart Tolle, he would just have you um, take 30 seconds. And I would actually send an alarm seven times a day. It would go off. When it would go off, I would just take 30 seconds to sit and look and be present and ask myself, what is perfect about this moment? And so it was never like, you know, like, obviously there's big things like I'm so grateful for my kids or I'm so grateful for my home or I'm so grateful for my health. But then there's the little things of like, I'm so grateful that I'm sitting, not standing right now because my legs are sore, or I'm so grateful that, you know, that cloud is right there and it kind of, you know, looks so wispy and fun. And that was really what kicked it off for me and awakened just a whole different way of looking at the world. Because once you start doing that regularly, and that was a habit, by the way, that felt so good. Like there was, mm. felt so, I, I love the micro commitments, like 30 seconds, like I can do that, right? So yeah, a micro commitment. I love that. So I love that you mentioned clouds and these other small pieces of gratitude because they're sensory, right? And we're sensory beings. And one of the things that I noticed so much for me in my life is that I maybe I think it was about three weeks after giving up drinking, maybe it was maybe four. I would like stop on the side of the road and I thought I'd been like slipped like a hallucinogenic because you know, here I live in Colorado, it's beautiful anyway, but I would be like, oh my gosh, the mountains, everything is so much more poignant and beautiful. And I could see out of my eyes and I could hear out of my ears, and um, it was like this sensory explosion. And um, I just want to tell what is the, you know, Brene Brown talks a lot about this concept that if you, um, if you dull the dark, you also dull the light. And what is the, what is the medical thing that happens with our senses and why are we in just let people know we, how we are dulling them with alcohol. And so we're not actually creating more joy. We're actually taking, we're sucking it out of the room. Oh man, this is so great. I literally remember that, like, honestly wondering, like, did I take something? <laughs> because I feel like <laughs> it was so wrong. similar. I was, I was like on Instagram every day, like people were like, why are you taking pictures of the trees? <laughs> like, so great. I understand like the light that's coming through this piece of grass right now at this moment, like, how are we living in this? How did we not notice this before? And it was just so amazing. And now today in one of my, in the first thing I start meditation with is like, come to your senses. So you feel all five of your senses, you feel something big and something small and really get grounded and present. And, um, and it's amazing, but okay. So the, the scientific reason that unfortunately alcohol creates this really narrowing of our sensory perception is twofold. Number one is it just dulls our senses. It dulls our ability, our neural connections to experience sensory input. So it's kind of laughable when someone's like, but this wine makes this food taste so much better. Well, actually no, the wine is dulling <laughs> your sense of taste and your taste buds. And so, or, or alcohol makes sex so much better. Alcohol might lower your inhibitions, but actually sex when you can get through those inhibitions and trust yourself is so much better when you're sober because you're not dulling your senses. And that sensory dull is, is a lot. I mean, it's a lot like enough alcohol will make you totally unconscious. They used to use it in surgeries because you could dull your senses to the point where they could cut you open. So, yeah, so I mean, that is really, that's incredible, right? Like they right? used to use alcohol in surgeries. Before they found safer alternatives, just. Yeah, no, but I mean, just like the fact that it will like, it really does knock you out. Yep. And and can you let people know too, what happens when people are blackout in their brain? What chemically is happening? Yeah, so a blackout is really the best way, the best analogy I have for it is as if you were trying to record something and you didn't like, imagine that we didn't hit record on this. So it's right. still happening. We're still talking, but it isn't actually being recorded somewhere. So what happens in the brain is the part of the brain that lays down memory is just totally obliterated. So you can, you, you actually still act and do everything and you seem drunk, but present to the people you're around, but you have no memory of it. It is gone and, and it's almost impossible to get it back. And what does it do to your brain over time? Um, it becomes more and more likely that you will black out. So every time you do it, so people can black out just with a sip of alcohol eventually, because it it becomes 
uh, again, it becomes like most things where that pathway gets formed and it's like, oh, this is what we do here. And it's in order to like one of the things that happens with the body when you're drinking is that the body says, okay, we need to handle this because this is actually super toxic. So we need to stop doing other key functions. So interestingly, um, your body will stop regulating your blood sugar, which is super dangerous, especially if you're like hypoglycemic or diabetic. Um, your body will stop digesting food, which is why you want that 3 a.m. Taco Bell run after eating a meal is because none of that food has been digested or processed. So you feel hungry because all your dinner is still sitting in your gut, right? So your body will also stop, um, you know, forming memory. And, and all of this is in order to focus on what your body is seeing is the most urgent thing, which is to purge the alcohol. I mean, we don't think about this and it's so mind blowing, yeah. but we throw up when we drink too much to save our lives, <laughs> Like, oh my God, it, like the chills. Yeah, because like that, we're like trying to get it out of our system. Yeah. We're trying to survive the poison we've just put in our own bodies. Um, yeah. But just to circle back quickly on that second point of why alcohol dulls your happiness is because there is uh, what happens in the brain is the brain gets overstimulated by alcohol. This is what happens with every addictive substance. And that overstimulation is a combination of like, over um, artificially high levels of dopamine that happen from every addictive substance and just overstimulation of the pleasure center in your brain, which you think is a great thing. You're like, oh yeah, well, that's why we drink. Like it feels really good. If you time how long it feels really good, it's about 20 minutes because that's the how long the stimulation aspect of alcohol lasts. And then you have the depressant aspect, which is two to three hours. But in that overstimulation, the brain says, no, no, no. My most important job is to maintain homeostasis in this body. If this body is not kept at this certain temperature, the heart is beating within a certain range, we will die. So I have to maintain balance. So when a spike happens, the body counteracts that spike. It counteracts it with a, with, um, a chemical process that re results in a chemical called dynorphin. And dynorphin lowers your body's ability to feel pleasure because it's counteracting that spike, that 20 oh my gosh. Spike in pleasure. The problem is your body's saying alcohol is toxic, get it out as soon as possible, but it's not saying dynorphin is toxic because guess what? Your body created it itself. So if you're drinking every single day, that dynorphin remains ever present in the body. And therefore all the things that you used to enjoy, like reading a book or going for a walk or looking at the clouds, they're just not interesting anymore because you have this, you know, this level of a depressant that is always in your system. And the thing that can break through that is the next drink. So it creates this false idea that alcohol is necessary to have fun. Really alcohol is just stealing your natural ability to have fun. And you don't even have to look further than kids to know this is true. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. And you know, one in my coaching, you know, one of the things that I tell people is with healthy habits that I reintroduce to them is I'm bringing them home um, to themselves. Right. And I'm not sure if you've ever read this wonderful book, um, gifts of our compulsions, but it talks a lot about this idea that the real reason why we drink or one of the reasons why we have any compulsion is that we're so homesick for that childlike self. And we're trying to find wonder again. And sort of the big oxymoron here is that to find wonder again and to be connected to whatever is greater than us or, or even nature, you know, taking these limiting behaviors away, one of them is drinking, is such a way to find ourselves again and to find our childlike self. You know, I, um, for me as a parent, you know, I, and I tell my clients this often, the minute you pick up a drink, um, or when I drank, it was like I was immediately disconnected from them, yep. right? And if I want to be connected with them, and they're only little for so long, right, until they, they don't want to be connected with me, that um, it's so important that I, I don't put any sort of plexiglass between me and my children. I want to like be as connected to them as possible. And so that's really the gift for me of not drinking. But I think something else, and, and you touched on this with the, with the pleasure centers being dulled, is... Tell us a little bit about this idea. And you talk a lot about this in your book that, you know, we receive this 20 minute dopamine hit. That's so fabulous. And then we spend the rest of our nights trying to get back to it. And when I tell clients that they're actually like, oh, that's disgusting. Well, how come I can't stop? And I, I try to explain and I'll let you do this for the audience about how your brain is actually hijacked, right? So like your prefrontal cortex is turned off. So tell us about that whole phenomenon of what happens when you pick up the first drink and beyond. 
So yeah, the um, alcohol effects our prefrontal cortex, which is our brain's CEO. It's like the decision maker. It's the part of our brain that can make longer term decisions, decisions for our greater good. And it affects it both cumulatively, meaning if you're drinking on a regular basis, you are diminishing its ability to do that. And so actually a lot of people who drink a lot notice that all other, which again, the Illuminati superpowers, like they notice all other areas of their life are harder. So it's, it's harder to maintain healthy eating when you're drinking a lot. It's harder to maintain an exercise routine when you're drinking a lot. It's very, it's very uncommon for someone to be a really heavy drinker and be really exceptional in a lot of other areas of their life. Now it's possible. And I know there's people out there, but like it is, it is less common. And that's because over time, our decision-making ability to make thoughtful, good decisions with our highest self for the future is impaired. It's also impaired in the moment with that drink, which means that second drink is infinitely harder to turn down than that first drink. And so that is one of the issues with, you know, just having one is that even that one drink is hijacking your brain's ability to really make good decisions. And this is compounded with the fact of that dopamine response I was talking about, which basically anything from high fructose corn syrup to first person shooter video games to, you know, alcohol to gambling, it's going to artificially stimulate, stimulate the dopamine production in the brain and artificial obviously just means not found in nature. So there's nothing in nature that isn't man-made that you're going to find. That's going to create this, this high level of stimulation. Now, when that happens, the brain understands dopamine as the learning molecule based on survival. So the brain understands that thing you just did, you need to do that again in order to survive. And the higher the dopamine response is, the more intense that I need this to survive uh, message the brain gets is. So when you're drinking regularly, the idea of not drinking can feel illogically terrifying because on a subconscious neurological level, your brain is literally believing that alcohol is necessary for your survival. And this is not just like some human beings or those who are like, quote, dependent or alcoholics. This is human beings who have like blood and flesh and cells, right? Yeah. And this is the science. This is the science that had 20,000 people downloading your PDF week one of your website. Yeah. Right. This is the science, the information about that we don't know and information's power. So I want to so zoom out just for a second. So, you know, when it, it, it's not lost on me that there is not this information readily available, you know, beyond your book, I haven't found a lot of work that has resonated with me like that. And that's why this message is so important to get out. And we're, you know, sort of counter the counter message is alcohol is fun and makes, makes everything more fun and mommy juice and book clubs. And it isn't lost on me that that rosé today is the is the gut rot white Zinfandel that I was drinking out of a box in 1994 <laughs> in college. So what has changed? And I know I, I believe I've heard you talk about this before, but what is was there a push? I believe there was in the 90s for for alcohol industry to target women specifically. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, they were actually identified. I found some literature about how women specifically were identified as an underserved market. Um, there is a conglomeration of companies that get together and share data, alcohol companies that share data in order to further the whole agenda, right? Um, and I mean, it's similar to like the eat beef or get milk, right? Like there's brands of milk and there's brands of beef, but there's then this overarching entity that's promoting it as a uh as a like concept. And that's exactly what's happening with alcohol. It's just a little more obscured. And so they identified women as an underserved market because they weren't drinking as much as men. And it's, it's fascinating because then all of these things started popping up. Like, you know, it's, um, no good story ever, ever started with a salad. That's why I drink wine or I drink wine on every day that ends in day. And like all of these things like that we would start to buy and put up in our house And women, actually, the messaging was such that we took it almost as an empowerment. Oh, well, I should be allowed to drink as much. Well, I can do that too. Well, of course. And so it it really applied to our desire to be equal and to lean into like feminism. And so it was very mixed up. And then suddenly you have, you know, overt branding on wine. You know, there's brands of wine that are called mommy juice. You know, yeah, and the dirty little secret. Go ahead. 
yeah, mommy gets her, her, her sippy cup too, right? And rosé all day, water bottles or coffee cups so that you are, you know, putting your wine in when you're at the park. And it's just super common. I mean, our kids do sports and in baseball and like the water bottles that the parents have, they're generally not filled with water. <laughs> I mean, and until we realize that that actually this sort of drinking culture, especially being targeted, right? We're sort of targeted as these consumers, especially these groups of moms, is not serving us. And it's disempowering, not empowering. Until we realize that as a group of people, it likely won't change. And, you know, we have a lot of power as consumers. So I think it's such an interesting message to get across. And then before I want to talk, just give you a chance to tell people how can they find you? If they want more Annie Grace, you know, they can download your app, um, the alcohol experiment. Where else can they find you? Awesome. So I have a podcast as well. Um, it's This Naked Mind is the podcast. And then the website with all the information is thisnakedmind.com. But for sure, if you're thinking about, you know, just interrupting your own habits or learning a bit more of this kind of fascinating science in a very non-threatening way, not a way that you have to give it up forever or get sober or anything like that, just highly recommend the alcohol experiment. And that's on the app store or at alcoholexperiment.com. Yeah. And where can they buy the, the Naked Mind book? They can buy it on Amazon. Now pretty much everywhere. Yeah, ever. Because it's now been traditionally published by Penguin Random House. So any bookstore, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, um, you can find it. Yeah. And what do you want people to know, um, sort of parting words um, that might be questioning their drinking? What, what sort of advice would you have for them? I think that, you know, if you're questioning it, just really understand that you should lean into that intuition. You know, there's, there's a part of you that is looking out for you and just really wanting the best for yourself. And I would explore that with a lot of curiosity, but put down all the judgment, put down all the fear, put down all the blame, you know, just understand that, especially during these last 20 months, if you've been drinking more than you have before, just really internalize this fact that you have been doing the best you can with the tools you have. And as a society, we've been given this one tool. Here it is. It's in a glass. It's this fermented liquid and it's going to solve all your problems. And of course we're using it because we're trying to survive. We're trying to be safe. We're trying to be sane. We're trying to be the best people we can be. And so when, when we're being told that this is the way and the path, of course, we're going to use it. So just put down any blame for that and, you know, just be open to learning. I think that one of the things that surprised me was that I knew more about the side effects of something like Advil. And I was more cautious with how much Advil I would take. Is this like bad enough? Am I, you know, I don't want to get like weird side effects when I was drinking two bottles of wine a day. And so I think we just, you know, we owe it to ourselves to be educated. And that doesn't mean you have to put it down. That doesn't mean you have to cut back. That doesn't mean anything. I just would encourage anybody listening to just get some education. Yeah, yeah, get some education and really understand, you know, the the side effects of alcohol. And I just want to repeat what you said earlier was that if you're questioning your drinking, just lean into those questions and get curious because what I want to offer and what you offered me Annie was there is a safe place to give up alcohol way upstream from, you know, finding yourself, um, you know, with in in an intervention situation, nothing wrong with that either. But I just mean, there is an empowered choice, especially us women can make that are the sort of, we're the, the, the rats in the laboratory experiments for the large alcohol companies. As consumers, we can make the empowered choice to give it up and live these happier. And I would offer more beautiful lives. I love that. And I love yeah. the upstream idea. So yeah, it's upstream, you know, and we can, we can say we made the choice before we had to make the choice. Right. And so as we reach the end of the show, I want to offer people can continue the conversation at habitsforhappiness.com, my Facebook group, check out Annie on her website, please buy her book on Amazon at change my life, download the app, the alcohol experiment. And remember, everyone, the road to happiness is paved with healthy habits. Please listen next week for another riveting conversation on a powerful habit that can change your life. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Habits for Happiness. Please join Lady Fuller for another edition of the program next Friday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, discover how to find your new happy place.